Triathlon Show with Anna Ludlow. Up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Philip Skiba. Phil is a medical doctor specializing in sports medicine and also holds a PhD in exercise physiology. He is also a highly regarded endurance coach and endurance performance consultant, having coached a number of world champion endurance athletes, Olympic athletes, including, for example, Joanna Seiger in triathlon. And he has been consulting on projects such as Nike's Breaking 2 project. Phil has a new book uh, coming out pretty soon, if it's not out already, called Scientific Training for Endurance Athletes, which we will discuss today. And also, if you want to hear more about Phil, he has been on the show before, back in episode 173, so you can go and listen to that i'll link to it in the show notes but before we get into the interview big thanks to our sponsors precision hydration precision hydration create electrolyte products that you can match to how you sweat and fueling products that make it easy to hit your numbers today i want to talk about the precision fuel range which is precision hydration's range of energy products including drink mix and gels and uh, there are two primary reasons to choose the precision fuel range or other ener- energy products. The first being that they serve their servings contain exactly 30 grams of carbohydrate, not 23 or 27 or some other complicated number, but 30, making it very easy for you to, in the heat of the moment in racing, keep track of your energy intake and hit your target numbers. And the second reason to go for precision fuel is taste. Their taste is uh, neutral or very mildly fla- mildly flavored, so to the point that it's almost impossible to dislike it even if you don't generally like gels or sports drinks this ensures that you can get down the gels or sports drinks very easily so that again makes it just easy for you to follow your nutrition plan and hit your numbers use the promo code that triathlon show 15 to get 15 percent off your order on precisionhydration.com and thank you to roca roca produce exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits tri suits swimskins goggles performance sunglasses as well as prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses if you want to go faster in the water or on the bike a roca wetsuit or tri suit might be for you or if you just want to have a more comfortable functional and stylish pair of eyeglasses then look to their range of eyeglasses i want to highlight the gen 2 elite aero tri suit today this is a tri suit developed and perfected based on both wind tunnel testing and real world testing on the road and in the water it is designed to provide the optimal balance of aerodynamics function and comfort from sprint to full iron distance triathlons just like the Roka wetsuit, it comes with the patented arms up technology for maximum shoulder mobility when swimming, so it won't constrain your swimming at all. Visit roka.com forward slash TTS for 20% off your order of the trisuit or any other Roka products. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the entry with Dr. Philip Skiba. Welcome to that travel show, Phil. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you back. It's been a while since last time. Of course, I'll link in the episode show notes to the previous episode. Uh, we have a lot of new listeners, so uh, let's uh, let you introduce yourself once again and uh, tell us a bit more about who you are and what your background is in endurance sports and coaching. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I wear a lot of different hats. Um, you know, professionally speaking, uh, I live in Chicago and I'm the director of sports medicine for Advocate Aurora, which is one of the largest health systems in the United States. Um, the more interesting part of my job is the work that I do with, um, with endurance athletes and things like that. I've been coaching triathletes since the early 2000s. Um, and then, 
you know, just very quickly learned as, as I coached more, uh, more and better athletes, um, that, uh, certain work had not been done in terms of the science end of it and how to really help these athletes improve, uh, in the best way that they could. Um, and so really I, uh, I developed a really intensive research program. I went over to the UK. Um, I worked with, uh, Andy Jones and Annie Van Hadel at the university of Exeter, where I ran their sports medicine program and worked on my PhD at the same time and kind of developed some more of these, um, some more of these tools and techniques to help athletes. Um, I also worked with British triathlon for the 2012 Olympics. Um, and then coming back to the United States, uh, things sort of snowballed. You know, I'd, I'd already coached a couple of world champions at this point. Um, I got hired by Nike to work on the breaking two project and, and do some other work where we, again, you know, use a lot of these mathematical tools and techniques, um, to develop an evidence-based approach to how we could help athletes in particular, Elliot Kipchoge, Zerson Tedeschi, and Elisa DeCisa try and run the marathon under two hours. Um, so yeah, I, I cast this sort of strange net that not a lot of, or I guess I inhabit an area a lot of people don't. I, I'm a doctor who's qualified in sports medicine. Um, I've coached a lot of elite athletes, uh, you know, including world record holders and Olympians. Um, and, and I have this kind of aggressive scientific program where I try to develop things that not just I can use, but everyone can use to help these athletes. Yeah. And uh, not to forget, you're also an author. You have a couple of really popular books that uh, have been difficult to uh, get your hands on for, for a little while. But that's one of the reasons, actually, that I wanted to invite you back because you're working on uh, the new addition to, to one of your books. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, as a doctor, as a scientist, I've always felt that that the secret is there's no secret, right? Um, we've done a tremendous amount of work in the last hundred years in terms of understanding how the athletes' bodies work and, and different ways of training them and things like that. And so my goal was rather than developing this big, thick, you know, hairy book, like some of those that are on the market, I just wrote two very short books that were about just a little bit more than hundred pages long and, uh, which gave you the basics. Here's the basic physiology that anyone who has been through high school can kind of understand. And, um, here are the basic training techniques that I know work because, you know, they're evidence-based here's 102 or 200 references demonstrating that they're known to work, you know, in terms of the science. Um, and here's how you can apply them easily. Um, and no one was more surprised than me at how successful they were. Um, you know, when I looked at, I was kind of surprised when I looked at, um, you know, the sales figures over a few years. Um, and then, um, and then I just uh, got so busy with with Nike and the athletes and breaking two and things, I felt like some of it um, was beginning to become a little bit dated. And so I started working on a new version that combined those two books into one, because why buy two books if you can just buy one? Um, and just that took longer than I expected, right? Because the science continues to evolve faster. And as new things come out, I'm looking at it and saying, ooh, there's this, we should add this. And um so yeah, it kind of became, it was just this labor of love over a few years and it's, and it's finally finished. Um, it's been finished for several months just due to production delays with the pandemic and things. Um, I'm just, I'm waiting for it to come out. Yeah. So the, the book, the new book is called um, Scientific Training for Endurance Athletes. And right. uh, do, you, do you have any information on uh, when we, we, this episode will be published? It will air in the beginning of November. Uh, do you have, a, can you give any an estimated date of arrival? I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping orders will be open then. I'm just, I'm, I'm literally, I've seen the proofs and everything. I'm just waiting for boxes of books to start arriving. All right. Well, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, you sent me the table of contents as well to, to give me a bit of a, uh, an idea of what you're going into there so so i thought we'll just cover a few of the different themes that you that you talk about in the book and uh well the first and 
perhaps most obvious one is uh, understanding your physiology and then training your physiology. So first of all, how do you recommend athletes go about understanding their uh, physiology? Uh, We can talk about things like formal testing, but also informal testing and qualitative assessment. So yeah, what's your uh, take on that? Yeah. I I mean, don't get me wrong. Coming into the laboratory um, is a lot of fun, right? Um, I've got all the fancy toys here in Chicago. We have two big physiology labs, including biomechanics and things. So you can do lots of really neat stuff. But the truth is, um, you can do a lot without that kind of technology or or incurring that kind of expense. Um, Number one, it's uh, a lot can be gleaned just by training for a while and observing what's going on with you. Um, and the easiest way to do that is is to look at what's called a power duration curve or a speed duration curve. What's the best you ever ran for 3k or 5k or 10k, you know, put it in Excel and draw it on a curve. Um, and then, uh, already you have very powerful information. You know, oftentimes people have said to me, you know, Skiba, you weren't a great athlete or anything. You played a little volleyball in college. Anyone who's ridden a bike with me knows I'm very slow. Um, so it's, um, but, um, what I can offer you is a way of understanding yourself. Um, and one of the reasons I've been so successful is tied to that power duration curve. You take an athlete, you plot out, you know, what's their best for these different distances. And then you look at their competition and you plot out their bests over different over different distances. And then you compare these two things and figure out where your opportunity is to beat this person. And I'd love to tell you it's more complicated than that, uh, but it's just not. Um, yeah. And so the, the first step is being willing to look at what you do, what, what you have done to figure out what you might be capable of. Yeah. And uh, th- that then leads to the next step of training. Uh, so so let's say you have identified where you are and maybe you then identify some goal related to whatever distance you're training for. How how, how do you is, – is it just a matter of training at the sort of power that you want to to do for your goal goal duration or what 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 sort of tips would you give here you know you're not far off right if you look at a lot of successful swim coaches like what do they do you need to swim a 400 at this particular pace great so first you're going to swim eight by 50 at that pace and then you're going to swim four by 100 at that pace and then two by 200 at that pace you're going to break it down until you're able to do that now with longer events and things it is it is a little bit more complicated than that um but, but only just, right? Um, the first thing to decide is if your goal is reasonable or not. You know, using some of the impulse response models I developed years ago, um, I figured out that to match Lance Armstrong on the Alpe d'Huez, I could train 96 hours a week, right? <laughs> but training 96 hours a week is not possible, <laughs> you know, without killing yourself. Um, and, and so I think that's the point is that the first thing to do, and this is where a lot of coaches are helpful is making this sort of clear eyed assessment of, of what you're, of what you're capable of. Right. Um, you put me on the treadmill, uh, when I'm in good shape, my VO two max is about 44 mils per kg per minute or roughly half of Elliot Kipchoge. There is no world in which I can achieve that level of performance, but suppose I can lose three or four kilos. And suppose I can train four days a week um, and keep myself from getting injured. You know, might I get that number up to 48? Sure. You know, might I, might I take a minute off my 5K time? Sure. And that's the goal, right? Is to make incremental uh, incremental steps towards something and see how you improve. And then decide, is it reasonable for me to be able to try to add more intensity or add more duration, um, to add more training load? Because that's really it. You need to tolerate a certain amount of training to take a step to a new level of performance. Um, and and that's, that's not always easy to see from the inside. Because I regularly get athletes 
um, who, you know, people who run a five hour marathon and tell me, I really want to qualify for Boston. And I'm telling them, you know, it's, it's not reasonable to think that we can knock an hour and a half off of your marathon time in the next six months. That's, it's absurd. Um, so, and so that's the challenge I think for athletes is being able to have a clear eyed view of what they're capable of. And that's where a coach is really helpful is able to kind of help you set those expectations. And, uh, Talking a little bit more about how the two combine the knowledge of your physiology and uh, and what you want to achieve, uh, do you have any particular kind of maybe rules of thumb for how an athlete's uh, we could call it a phenotype, so their their power duration curve if they're more kind of on the faster end of things, good with the very short duration to produce a lot of power in sprints or um, or well very short durations, or vice versa. What sort of training generally? Or what sort of interventions generally might work or might not work might be need to be avoided. How might you need to tune the training to your own physiology in that way? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because I get into this a bit in the book. You know, when we talk about the power duration curve or the speed duration curve, um, you know, if you're talking about cycling, you're talking about this thing called the W prime and and the critical power or where your power starts to level out. Um, you can view that W prime as a sort of battery that is accessible to you when you go above your critical power and you drain that battery a little bit. And when you recover, you recharge the battery a little bit. Um, in, in running, it's very similar. It's called the D prime, which is measured in meters. And uh, then you have a critical speed where you sort of level out. It's maybe your 10 K pace, something like that, just as a rule of thumb. Um, one of the things uh, we know is that it's very difficult to affect the battery. This thing that used to be called the anaerobic work capacity, um, at least in a positive way. Because most training you do as an endurance athlete results in an increase in critical speed or critical power and a reduction in the size of that W prime or D prime. Um, so in effect, the, 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 the effect or the, the result of most endurance training is a, is a loss of high end speed and an increase in endurance. And that's great if you're trying to be a triathlete or something, but it's a challenge if you're a sprinter, uh, as a cyclist, because you have competing problems now. You need to be fit enough, aerobically speaking, to maintain your position until the sprint. But if you're too trained aerobically, you'll lose your sprint ability. Um, and that's a, that's a, it's a very difficult nut to crack sometimes. Um, you know, for those of the people, you know, who listen to this podcast, mostly into triathlon, it, it's not that big a deal. Most of the training you're going to do is going to increase it is certainly going to increase your critical speed or your critical power if you're doing it correctly. Yeah. Do you have any, what, one interesting topic that we discussed recently on the podcast was about, muscle fiber typology and some research done by uh, researchers in, in Belgium and Australia. And they looked at uh, how muscle fiber typology would impact, for example, the sustainable training load and that the more fast twitch athletes might be more susceptible to overreaching by um, having too big a training load that wouldn't negatively impact the, the slow twitch typology. So is that something that you would agree with, uh, in, oh, and you know, it, so it, it, what about? It, sorry, it's sorry, certainly possible. You no, know, it's that's okay. Uh, it, it's certainly an interesting area of research because um, not enough work in the space has been done yet to really understand what's going on. Um, that being said, um, you know, my experience has been that um, it, it less has to do with you know exact muscle typology, for example, um, which really kind of helps dictate how you ought to be training. Um, and has more to do with how willing the athlete is to listen to their body. Um, because I see a number of really, you know, high level endurance athletes who end up overtrained, um, these people, you know, and I, and I have some of their biopsies. I know they're mostly slow twitch. 
Um, but um, you do need to be careful um, as you interpret some of the, some muscle typology data. Um, and, and in particular, and, and I'm not singling anybody out here, um, because in particular, um, there's challenges to things like biopsies, right? Um, if you biopsy deeper in the muscle, you're going to get more slow twitch fibers. If you biopsy near the surface, you're going to get more fast twitch fibers. If you biopsy the upper limb, you're going to get more fast twitch. If you biopsy the lower limb, you're going to get more slow twitch and so on. So, um, it's very difficult to do, uh, really exhaustive work in terms of, you know, muscle fibre uh, fiber typology, because it take, requires a lot of bi biopsies in a lot of places to really get a picture of what's going on fully. Um, there, and then you want to take that information and start making, um, you know, determinations about things like overtraining or not. I mean, even just the field of overtraining, we just don't know that much. There have been more review papers written on overtraining than there have primary papers on overtraining. Um, mm -hmm. so lots of people have ideas. Um, but anyone who says they really know what's going on, you got to question that. Yeah. And uh, one one more question on this topic is uh, well, last time we talked, we we talked quite a bit about the determinants of endurance performance. We talked about uh, VO two max, lactate threshold, and uh, we talked about economy. Uh, when when we look at physiology and training or physiology, what is what is your view? Do you generally look at okay, we let's look at these components and and we try to maybe train one or two of them? I know that we talked about uh, actually, you generally train at least two of them at the same time if not all three of them in a way but uh, do you look at it like that at all or do you more so look again coming back to that specificity that we talked about or maybe just looking at the uh, gap analysis or race demands whatever however you want to frame it yeah i mean th th there's two things to think about is number one what's the best way to train physiology and number two what's the best way to train performance Because those are not necessarily the same thing. Um, you know, one of the things I often talk to people about is uh, my colleagues, uh, Peter Leo and, and James Sprague, are doing some incredible work looking at particular juniors and then uh, as athletes advance, what are the what are the um, uh, what are the differentiators between people who are great juniors and then become great um, uh, and then become great uh, you know higher level athletes, professionals, and things. And what they find is that has a lot to do with prior exercise. So if you take two people, one who is maybe uh, you know a high-level junior and someone who's a professional, you may not find gigantic differences in VO2 max or critical power, um, which might be a little bit surprising to people. Um, but what you do find is that their ability to perform after putting in, say, several thousand joules of work is different between the uh, the the um, you know the junior and the professional, right? So this is not necessarily something that people think about, you know, right away. They think, oh, look, my, my, my threshold, quote unquote, however they particularly are defining that has gone up, but that doesn't guarantee performance, right? Um, and, and people have figured this out on their own. You know, if you go look at, say, the way the Kenyans train, um, you know, when I was up in Eldoret, in Eldoret with Elliot Kipchoge and his guys, you know, they do their long run. And that long run starts out very, very easy. I mean, most decent amateur athletes could keep up with them, you know, for the first 10K anyway. And or maybe 15K, but then they start cranking up the pace, right? And they're doing their hardest work at the end of this run. So maybe they started at eight minute per mile pace, but the last sort of five or 10K in a 20 mile run, they're running that at, you know, sort of uh, 430 per mile pace, you know, or something approaching that. So they're going very, very fast by the end. Um, and, and so they've already figured out that one of the important determinants is being able to do hard work after you did a bunch of work already. Um, 
And so, so for example, when I'm, when I'm writing, uh, uh, training for, for athletes, be they, you know, amateur or professional, um, during their long run, they're not really getting a long, easy run. What they're getting is either a run where they run easy for a while and then do some blocks of, of harder, closer to threshold work at the end of that run, or they're doing a, pro- a progressive run sort of the way the Kenyans do, where they slowly crank up the pace throughout the race. And, and so that's the thing. It's this combination of kind of that coaching know-how and what we know from the science and sometimes those two things, like you know, like 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 Peter and, and James's work, point to exactly the same thing that you know athletes have already figured out working out in the field in Kenya with very little sports science, you know, uh, of any kind. Yeah, uh, well, this is some, uh, very interesting. It's kind of that some people call it the fourth uh, determinant of endurance performance: fatigue resistance. And yes. your colleague Andy Jones has done some really interesting research in in that area as well. So, um, and and I know Alex Hutchinson wrote a fantastic kind of uh, yeah popular uh popular science uh, article about it using some examples from for example kenyan runners so so that's something for listeners to check out if they're interested absolutely um, yeah, yeah that's a great a great great point now uh, let's discuss periodization a little bit uh, how do you mm. view periodization and how how does that fit into the programming puzzle yeah and, and it's interesting i just uh, wrote a chapter for a for a sports medicine textbook where I actually spend some time talking about periodization as a way of trying to avoid the problems of overtraining and things like that. And again, there's been a fair amount written on periodization, not much of it particularly evidence-based. Um, so again, you know, part of this has to do with um, there's a little bit of trial and error involved, a little bit of what you know any particular coach has seen work a lot of times. Um, but I think you know I've tried to develop some rules of thumb to, to, to tell you, talk about how you ought to periodize. And the most important one is general to specific, right? The original work that was done on periodization was, um, you know, was done in, by Matviev in Russia around the time of the Helsinki, Helsinki Olympics in the 50s. And what he literally did was hand out uh, a bubble sheet to the athletes. You know, are you training slow or are you training fast? And, and so on, right? They're very general questions. And then this became sort of publicized as the best way to train athletes. Um, Iron Curtain comes down. Western people don't really hear about this so much anymore. So they just start training everyone this way. We're going to go slow and then we're going to go fast and then we're going to go have a race. That works great if you're running sort of 5K or 10K or 800 or something relatively short. That's not going to work at all if you're running a marathon, right? Um, so really, the rule that Matt you've discovered and which has subsequently been um, in part supported by people like Verkashansky and these other guys who like to write about periodization is that you have to go from general to specific, Right now, for a short race, that means going slow and then going fast. But for a long race, it probably means the faster stuff comes somewhere in the middle, um, and then we maintain some intensity as we build out the duration we need to be able to do um, to be able to run, say, a successful marathon or, or do an Ironman triathlon or, or or something like that. So, I think the most important rule uh, as you're periodizing is going from general to to, to specific. Um, and uh, number one, and, and then number two, just the, the, the reasonable idea that you got to go slow and uh, you got to go short and fast before you can go long and fast. Um, because if you look at that power duration curve and you watch it for a period of years, what do you see is that first that curve rises and then the tail of that curve stretches out longer and longer and flatter and flatter as you become more fatigue resistant. Um, so depending on your event that's going on, I and mean, it's one great way to monitor your own physiology, right? Either you are faster or you are not faster. Um, and that's really the crucial part of all these toys that people are marketing to you, right? Um, it's a lot of fun to have a power meter or anything, but you don't really, the real power in that power meter 
is to ask the evidence-based question of yourself. Am I making more power or not? Is this GPS showing me going faster or not? Um, now, sadly, there's a lot of coaches out there that don't like that because it makes them accountable. If the athlete is executing my plan and they are not getting faster, that is my fault, not the athletes. Mm, yeah, those those are two great rules. And uh, one thing that uh, that comes into question here a bit is uh, depending the, how the season is laid out with races. So it, yeah. it's it can be very different for somebody like Eliud Kipchoge who might target two major marathons, one spring and one fall marathon, uh, or even an Olympic marathon. Uh, versus somebody who is let's say doing uh the wt uh, wcts uh series and and need to basically be ready to perform from april to end of september or so when when the races are are happening in normal years anyway so so how do you think that those the race schedule might impact the sort of general to specific uh rule of thumb yeah so if you you know if you mathematically look at training and that's generally that's 50% of what I do is look at the math um, and how, how I can help analyze the way, the way people train is that you can maybe get one legitimate peak or two a year, maybe um, before the, before the, um, the absolute performance in those events starts dropping. Okay. Um, and so, and that's a real challenge. If you're, if you're, you know, doing these corporate races that require you to perform again and again and again, because really at that point, um, and a lot of coaches won't admit this, um, at that point, success is, is very much dependent upon just athlete selection. In other words, is their baseline level of performance high enough that they don't have to beat themselves up too much to be able to maintain a high enough level of performance over that period of several months? There's lots of people that I can train, um, even amateurs, with one peak a year to perform at a professional level um, it, it's, it's not that hard. Um, it is extremely difficult to find people who you can maintain that level of performance over a period of months. And in my experience, that has less to do with the quality of the coach and more to do with probably the genetic predisposition of the athlete. Um, you know, were they good enough to begin with to be able to tolerate, excuse me, to tolerate that kind of thing. Um, so I think that's another, that's another place where you have to ask yourself, um, really important questions. Can I do that? Is it within my possibility or do I really only have one good race a year in me? Um, and that's an important thing to be, to, to be honest with yourself about because trying to make a living as a professional triathlete is not easy. You know, um, many of the, the world, world champion level athletes I've trained, um, they would probably make more as a manager in a Starbucks. Um, and so it's, uh, you, you really got to think about that and what your goals are in terms of the professionalization of the sport versus I just want to be an athlete. I want to be healthy and I'm going to have other things in my life as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, th that's, those are good points. Uh, not necessarily easy <laughs> to, to accept that you might only have one or two, two at most, uh, peaks in you per year, but, but really, um, we're thinking about and, uh, really just highlights how important it is to, to really plan these things quite, um, yeah, in a, in a structured manner, if you, if yeah. you're interested in getting the most out of yourself. I, I mean, one of the things I analyze in the book, um, is, is kind of some of the training that, that Elliot Kipchoge and Paul Radcliffe have done. Now, honestly, I, I can't, you know, I obviously can't reveal their training logs and things like that. But what I do is I go through the training that they've revealed publicly and, you know, uh, online and in magazines and things. And then I go back and kind of analyze it, 
right? And I, and, I, and I show you just how hard and just how fast they're training. And the thing I want to emphasize is that Elliot Kipchoge can tolerate the training he does, same with Paula, because they're Elliot and Paula. They don't become that because they were able to tolerate that training. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at Paula's history, um, you know, as you go back through the way she trained over the years, when she was junior world champion, I think she was running less than 20 miles a week, right? So what does that say about the basic protoplasm of this athlete to begin with? She was world-class doing almost nothing, right? So that's a person that you can say, yeah, okay, this is a person that's probably going to be able to tolerate a considerable amount of training, um, you know, to kind of move them up incrementally as as they go along. Yeah. Yeah. Very good points. Now, the next topic I want to discuss is one that we touched upon already, specificity, but you dedicate an entire chapter in the book to it. So so maybe you have something more to add on that because it uh, seems to be something that you uh, consider really quite important in the preparation of an athlete. Yeah. So I, I think um, in general, um, the race-specific training comes in terms of periodization. You know, as, as Again, since we're going from general to specific, it comes in as, as we get closer to the race. Um, now, the point is this. Uh, we just had the Chicago Marathon uh, here. Um, in the two weeks or three weeks before the marathon, um, I always see a huge pile of athletes show up in my waiting room with stress fractures um, because all of them have been banging out 20 mile runs as their long run for a month or two by then, you know, the people who are really trying to go fast. Um, and that's how they hurt themselves. And what they're thinking is, um, well, this is really specific training, right? I'm doing this again and again, and, and it's going to make me better. Um, and here's really the thing. Uh, you don't need to run 20 miles to be able to run 26 miles. And you certainly don't need to be able to do it repeatedly, right? You're like Jack Daniels always says, you don't want to leave your race in training. And that's what you end up doing. You have to have something left in the tank, you know, um, when it's time to race. So in general, what I do is I do these uh, longer efforts, uh, sort of race preparatory efforts, where we um, we do something to pre-fatigue you. So maybe I send you out for, if you're an Ironman athlete, I send you out for a, a 60-mile ride or a 50-mile ride. And after that, we sit on race power, whatever we've determined that's going to be, and we sit on that for an hour, you know? Are you able to maintain that power without deviation, without decline for that amount of time? Good. Okay. If that feels pretty good. That's a really good sign. And so what I reference is a bunch of different ways of doing these kind of, uh, of kind of, um, you know, signpost workouts or, or, or kind of ways of, of kind of guesstimating where you're at. Um, and, and for different distances, I give, you know, um, different, you know, uh, different duration things that you can try, you know, ride this far around this power, add this run at the end, you know, are you maintaining your speed? Or are you declining? And, and so on. Um, and, and it's really, um, it's not that much more complicated than that. Um, you know, I think it's, it's interesting to me because so many times athletes have said to me, you know, Phil, like, uh, you know, I, I'm, I can't deny that I'm improving, but your workouts are boring. <laughs> and, it's, um, and they're right because either you can do the work or you can't. Um, and no matter of me making really complicated workouts that keep you interested, like in a spin class, for example, which is fun to do and a good way to stay fit. That's not necessarily the best way to prepare for a race. Like this is what you got to be able to do. Can you do it or not? And if not, great, let's recalibrate our goals, you know, and let's set a goal that we know you can, that we know you can meet, 
Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, it's uh, yeah, you you need to have a lot of patience and and be able to deal with some monotony if you, you really want to uh, train uh, the best way to prepare for for endurance events. Um, yeah, I, with with that that type of of ride, which is a really great one with yeah fifty sixty miles and then then an hour at race power Ironman race power, is is that your primary method of uh, helping the athlete determine? a target or for for their actual race power as well like if they could do that one hour at the end of the ride that's kind of the a main indication that yeah they, they will be able to it's you know like, like people often say right ride for show run for gold right so it's not necessarily about that it's can i now get this person off the bike and have them run say 10k at their at their goal race pace yep. you know yeah um and, and again you know part of this uh, is about i mean all of this is about learning how to pace um, you know, and, and I'm, you know, e- even when I'm, when I'm dealing with professionals, even when I'm dealing with people who are Olympic qualifiers, you know, and they're looking at their pace and they're, and they're really trying to think, you know, what's the, what's the best I can do. Um, you have to obey what your body is telling you, you know, in the moment, right? Cause no matter how it went in training, it might be 20 degrees too hot. Like it was in Chicago this weekend. A lot of people had a really bad day. And so what I tell them is that be willing to be honest with yourself, you know, you know after, you know, 10 K ask yourself, you know, can I run the fastest 30 K of my life right now? And if the answer is no, you got to slow down. Um, you got to keep saying that to yourself every five or 10 K. If you make it into the last 10 K and you still feel good, right? That's the time. Like I say, you can open your can of whoop ass, but until then you got to, you got to take it easy. Like you got to keep, you're checking in with yourself over that distance. Am I still okay? Am I still okay? Am I eating and drinking enough? Um, it's a very, there's a very analytical mental process about it you know, and learning to be honest with yourself. And and over the years, the athletes who I've seen be the most successful are the people who can keep the coolest heads. Um, you know, years ago, Kat Morrison was, um, uh, was racing, uh, in Lanzarote. Um, and she had a mechanical, um, somewhere in the middle of the bike leg and it's hot and it's no good and she has no way to fix it. So she like sits under a tree, right. And waits for like, you know, the service car or whatever. Um, and she finally manages to fix her bike. Now she's lost a whole bunch of time, but she's also sat there very calmly eating and drinking, um, and just, and not freaking out. Um, and then she ran one of the fastest marathons she's ever run and took the lead with a mile to go and won. Um, and, and why was she able to do that? Because she was able to keep this kind of, um, you know, Buddhists often talk about, not that I'm going to be the white guy that's into Buddhism, right? But, the, <laughs> um, the Buddhists often talk about, um, learning to observe yourself. Um, and the more athletes are able to do that, just that one tiny skill, um, the better they do. And like in Kat's case, but sometimes very dramatic results. Yeah, no, that, that's a fantastic story. Uh, reminds me of Patrick Lange winning his first world championship with a five minute penalty uh, off the bike and then running the fastest, uh, the fastest time in almost living memory. <laughs> yeah, on, exactly. On the island. Um, yeah. And, uh, how long would you typically incorporate the specific training for these longer events for like half and full Ironman or for marathon running? What would the race um, specific period be? I, I mean, the race specific period is typically the last eight weeks before the event or, mm-hmm. or, or the last 12 weeks before the event like that. So by that time, hopefully you've banked enough training that we can start doing some of these kind of indicator workouts and they don't need to be all the time. You know, every few weeks you can try one of these things. All right. You know, this time, this time let's go 50 miles and then you know, ride for an hour real hard and then, and then let's run off the bike, you know, because again, there's a, there's a cost, there's a recovery cost you incur every time you go to the well like that. Right. So you want to be sure, um, that, uh, you don't beat them up too much. And, and again, like I said, leave your, leave your race and training. 
Yeah. Would would the race-specific period be similar in duration even for, let's say we have somebody like an up-and-coming draft legal athlete who might mostly be racing sprints and super sprints, so very short mm-hmm. and fast racing. W- would it still be a similar duration or would it be different because the type of training, specific training is so different? Yeah. I, some, sometimes in those indications, because your training is so fast, um, you can, you can get away with it because especially when you're, you're with, with doing less of it simply because, um, there's not the same kind of recovery cost, you know, um, every time I make you do a long run off a long bike, like that, that beats you up and you're not yourself for a while. Um, when you're doing shorter races, it's not necessarily so the athletes who excel at that tend to be able to recover, um, you know, tend to be able to recover a little bit quicker in my experience. Mm. Well, that that leads me to a very interesting question because, well, you mentioned several times the mathematical modeling that you do. And uh, speaking of that recovery cost and it being significantly higher from those sorts of long efforts, um, is there a way that um, that the everyday athlete can can quantify that somehow? What is what is your recommendation? Is training stress score good? Is it kilojoules? What what, what do you recommend? So uh, he- here's the challenge. Um, when you're looking at, say, something like the training stress score or bike score or trimps or any of these metrics that purport to encompass both intensity and duration, and, and these are valuable things to use, um, you have to remember is you can treat that like a dose. Okay, It's like medicine, right? If I give you two aspirin, I'll fix your headache. And if I give you three, I'll fix your hangover. But if I give you 10, I'm going to give you an upset stomach. And if I give you 30, I'm going to damage your kidneys. And if I give you a couple hundred, I'm going to kill you. Um, and all that has to do with how quickly that medicine rises in your blood and the damage that it does, and then how quickly it fades from your body and is eliminated. Um, you can treat exercise the same way. Um, and Bannister and Calvert and those guys uh, up in Canada um, who originally did that work from the 1970s on um, showed that these mathematics are, are really pretty robust. So what you need to be willing to do is not just look at the training stress you got from a uh, particular workout. You want to be able to look at that over time and see, okay, um, how does that, uh, how long does that take to get out of me? What's the positive influence on my training and what was the negative influence on my training? And, and there are software packages that can do this. A golden cheat is for free um, and, and, and it works very, very well. Um, but then you can get an idea of how, in general terms, fitness and fatigue come and go from your body. But even without those tools, um, again, if you just keep a really good log of how you feel after one of those workouts, you know, how long are your, are your legs really heavy? How long is it before you go out on another run and you feel like yourself? Um, ask those questions and, and write down the answers. And you'll very quickly start to understand, for example, how do I need to build my, my, my taper? Um, now, the mathematical example is interesting because it allows you to you know, or using those tools are interesting because it allows you to get where you need to be more quickly. Um, one of the examples I, I often talk about in lectures and I talked about in the book is I compare Joanna Zeiger, um, who, uh, won the world championships and set the world record at the half Ironman distance in, uh, in, in 2008 and Kat Morrison, who was a, a four-time world champion at the duathlon. Um, when you look at them, you test them in the lab, they're very similar numbers. Um, and so someone might think, well, we could probably train these people the same way, but you can't. Because when you analyze these two people, what you found were very different mathematical responses to training. What you found was that cat recovers from even very hard workouts in just a matter of days. Um, where if you really hit Joanna hard, it would take her more than a week to really get back to feel like herself. And you can plot out these things called influence curves or, or effect curves. And they'll show you 
how long after you do something really hard do you feel the fitness bent or the performance benefit of that workout? You know, for Kat, it was just a couple of days. For Joanna, it could be up to two weeks. Um, and so once you draw these curves, um, and for my for my work, they've been very useful in dealing with team sports and um, and national governing bodies and things. Um, and for example, showing a swim coach, yeah, yeah, you've got all these great athletes and you're running this training program, but you have to more specifically address each athlete because each one of them, their fitness and fatigue is coming and going slightly differently. Um, and if you really want the best performance out of everybody, it's going to require these more um, uh, these more tailored approaches to tapering and things like that. Even if you don't use the math, you need to really sit down and really interview each athlete hard and figure out the way it's changing and how to taper them appropriately. Hmm. Uh, is it when we look at the uh, at the at the banister model? Does it come down to individualizing the the time constants? Uh, is that what what it's about? So. That, that, that's correct because everyone's t everyone constants are slightly different you know like you can make these kind of broad commentaries about you know where those those tend to add up on a population basis but everyone ends up with very individual parameters and the way I, i've made i mean honestly i made my success was i built those models myself i i, I patented a slightly different way of doing it um and then um just strictly analyzed every athlete you know how do i need to build them how do i need to taper them um I mean, and, and it works, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's very old uh, mathematics, but, it, but it works very, very well. Um, and, uh, you know, that there, there are criticisms of it, just like there are of, of lots of things, um, you know, uh, scientifically and mathematically speaking. But, um, in my, in my experience, the, the, the pros almost always outweigh the cons. If people are willing to really religiously track how they, uh, how they train and they're really rigorously willing to test themselves and figure out how they perform and when you do those mm. two things the models are incredibly powerful mm. fascinating uh now the final chapter that i want to touch upon from the book is the one on power and speed uh and I, that is obviously an interesting one in in a book on endurance sports uh so can you tell us what what, what is your view on the role that power and speed has in endurance athletes yeah so um the power duration curve is one curve, right? But, uh, it's high on one side when you're going short and it slopes down and it gets really flat on the other end. Um, and, uh, it's very difficult to move one part of that curve without moving the whole curve. Um, although people would like you to think otherwise, um, really a lot of it, especially out of the endurance end of it, things tend to move very, very much in synchronicity. First, you move the whole curve upwards when you're a very amateur athlete. And then as you get better and better, you tend to lower the fast end and raise, um, you know, the, the, the longer, slower duration end of it. Um, so, uh, the, the, you know, one of the best ways to address things like critical power, which is a major determinant of your endurance performance is by doing sort of specific power-based training, um, just below or near quote unquote threshold, you know, and, and I, I use critical power, other, other people use different things, but all of those markers kind of correlate with each other. So as long as you're using one religiously, it's, it's probably okay. Um, but you have to be willing to do that, to do that kind of work because at some point you, you can't go any longer. So you have to go harder. Um, or you don't have the time to go out there and do a six hour ride every weekend. If you've got four kids and, and a job and a partner that you don't want to divorce you. Um, so there's, um, you know, there, there always has to be this part of power and speed because we know if you look at, 
the data from you know Marty Gabala and guys like that that do work on really high intensity interval training or sprint or, or sprint uh, interval training. Um, that it's a really powerful stimulus uh, for for many markers of, of of endurance performance, including VO2 max. Mm, yeah. So, can you give an example on how how to implement that sort of training? What what sort of session would uh, would be would be a good example of that? Yeah. So, so again, they don't need to be very long now, um, or or or, uh, or or particularly. Um, so, so for example, um, I don't prescribe a lot of the sprint interval training uh, simply because it's not it's not super specific to what we're trying to do in the long term. Um, it, it can have a place in people who are extremely time limited. Um, but in general, um, when I'm having athletes do their really hard stuff, you know, they're doing sort of uh, two minute interval to start with, maybe two minute intervals, um, you know, at their best sort of four minute power or something like that um, with sort of equal recovery. And then we can kind of start to manipulate that. We can try to make those longer or, or whatever. But in my experience, um, it doesn't take a lot of that kind of training. Um, and when you look at guys like, you know, Elliot and Paula and, and like that, you know, right now there's a big a push towards this polarized training model, um, which to be honest, I'd be very cautious about um, because when you look at a lot of the training of, uh, uh, of really successful athletes um, at, at the elite level, they do a lot of work in the space, you know, just below critical power or near critical power um, and above the, the first lactate threshold or the gas exchange threshold. Now people call this kind of the gray zone. Um, but that is a powerful and necessary stimulus as well. And it has a part in every training program. So in addition to that kind of faster stuff, I have them doing this um, more quote unquote tempo paced stuff or in, or in the heavy domain, as we call it in the world of physiology. And I, and I talk about those domains in the book and what they mean in terms of physiology and in terms of fiber type selection, because they do have important implications. Um, but uh, you know, that's the kind of work that we might do in blocks near the end of a long ride, for example. Um, mm -hmm. and then you have your work that you're going to do right around the critical power or, or critical speed, you know, for example, um, remembering that there's a measure, measure of error around all of these things. Um, and just take a little bit of a sidetrack, you know, one of the reasons cyclists like to use functional threshold power, however you want to define that versus critical power is they say, well, I, I can hold functional threshold power for longer. So that means it's a better marker or whatever, but that's really not so, um, because if I tell you to ride at critical power, I'm doing you a disservice um, because we don't know exactly what that is. It's a mathematical artifact. It's an infinitely thin line that measures threshold. And if you're two watts above it, your physiological response is way different than if you're two watts below it. Um, so you have to understand that there's a band of uncertainty there. And so when you're doing, say, this threshold training, being five or 10 watts under that power is, is probably not that meaningful. And you're probably getting a similar stimulus. Versus going over and maybe going too hard and, and punking out early. Yeah, and I interviewed uh, Mark Burnley, and we talked about critical power, and he uh, he drove home the point that actually to really get a reduce the error in your critical power assessment, you need at the very least four, but ideally five time trials to to reduce the error. Because if you base it on three time trials, let alone two, then your margin of error is plus minus i can't remember but maybe 30 40 watts something incredibly yeah big. It, it can be i mean it, it really it really depends on how willing you were to really go to the wall you know when you're doing those tests for most athletes can you get away with three watts or three three watts uh, th three tests probably um can you do more yes um but you have to also be certain especially when you're not in a laboratory that all five of those tests were as hard as you could do it 
you know, that yeah. you really, if you went 20 minutes, you went as hard as you could go for 20 minutes and you didn't slack because even if you did a little bit, that extra point on your curve may totally throw the curve off. Yeah. So I prefer to think in terms of how many really high quality tests did I have and then yeah. use, use those, use those as I can. In in practical terms, I totally agree. I've never prescribed four or five tests to to an athlete, but yeah, but it, it's really it is, hard. But it's helpful to mathematically know the limitations absolutely. Of, of absolutely of, of a test. Um, yeah, and uh, well, so coming back to those two minute intervals, for example, when when you're going really hard in 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 the severe domain, so it, then it sounds like you're still really kind of looking at at aerobic adaptations. That's that's the system you're, or, or are you also interested in developing the glycolytic uh, system? You know, r- right now it, th- there has been this kind of resurgence for a variety of reasons um, in terms of, in terms of you know training glycolytic systems and things like that. Um, and and here's the the point I want to I want to drive home. Um, the glycolytic system is almost never a limiter. It responds to what you're trying to do. It does not dictate it. Um, so um, you're riding way above threshold. You've got to ratchet up your glycolytic your, your glycolytic pathways to burn more glycogen, right? Um, and that that is not in general um, is not generally rate limited. Um, because we know that's true because if I make you sprint and I buy up to your muscle, okay, what I find is that even though almost no matter how hard you go, I can't get you to really appreciably drop the amount of ATP in your muscle because you're burning glycogen fast enough to maintain that level. Okay. Um, so the idea that you're going to quote unquote train the glycolytic pathway or something that that's really not what you're doing. You know, when you do really hard training, um, what you're training is, you know, when you're going really hard is you're training the neuromuscular system, you're training the neuromuscular system to be able to fire quickly, to fire as many units as more units as possible in absolute synchrony, because the more synchronously they fire, the, the higher the power up it becomes. Um, and that's really what it's about. The, the metabolic systems are just meeting that demand, you mm-hmm. know, and, and even in for, for very, very good athletes, they're really not limiting it. And that's a very different story than with aerobic training, right? When you get out there in sort of the, 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 the right hand of that right hand side of that power duration curve, um, that's really about how many mitochondria do you have and how quickly can they work through and produce, uh, produce aer- energy aerobically speaking before you start burning glycogen and, and making lactate and, and, and all that kind of stuff, doing all those other things, um, you know, that we're sort of, that we're sort of trying to avoid depending on how long we're trying to go. Mm, that's very interesting. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that's kind of, yeah, that, that covers it for power and speed. Or do you have anything other, uh, that you think is, uh, useful to, to mention on, on that topic? You know, the, the thing I, I like to tell people is that, you know, everything can have a place. Um, you know, for example, early on in the season or with a beginner athlete, um, you know, basically anything you do for them, is going to make them better. Um, but um, everything you do for them is not going to keep them interested, right? So doing things like, you know, uh, 30-30s, for example, which at the end of the day, after you do a bunch of them, have more of an aerobic stimulus than anything else. Um, you know, uh, that can help you put a little bit of speed in somebody's legs, make them feel like they're working a little bit harder, but not incur a giant recovery cost. Um, and so I think that's the way to think about it is, you know, is where can I apply these different, these different parts of power and speed at different parts, um, of the training program, uh, 
to kind of guide things where I'm trying to go to kind of try and keep the athletes kind of interested um, and so on. And this is why coaching is so important. Um, you know, if it was just about the physiology, um, it'd be way easier to make champions than it is. Um, that there is an art form to this um, that is just as important as the scientific end of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember last time we talked to you, you did say that coaching, uh, that 99% is still uh, co coaching and communication. <laughs> so even after all the science is said and done. Yeah. Um, I mean, if just if you I, listen it, to people. Yeah. But but actually, what you said just said reminded me of one follow up question I had. You you said before mm. that when when you do those uh, that type of really hard uh, work, uh, two minute intervals, severe domain training, then that you can do it for quite a limit, or you don't need to do it for a long long time. I understood that to mean in terms of weeks of a training block, for example. Was that what you meant? And if so, how long a training block would you typically use it? Yeah. For? So one of the interesting things that came out of my PhD. Um, was uh, one of the studies I, you know, we did where we looked at, um, we were trying to just figure out how well the model worked in terms of the W prime balance model. That is, let's treat this uh, W prime or this thing that used to be called the anaerobic work capacity as a battery, mathematically speaking. And let's train some athletes and let's see how well it tracks the point at which the battery runs out and they get tired. And, and it turns out it works pretty good. But one of the ways we tried to break the model was we said, great, let's burn through about half of the battery doing short intervals. And then let's do a long sustained effort at the same power until they blow up, until they can't carry on. And, and let's see, did the model correctly predict when they were going to get tired? And in general, plus or minus a certain percentage, it, it worked pretty well. But that wasn't the interesting part. The interesting part was that after just two weeks of this, uh, people increased their VO2 max by about 10% and their critical power by about 15%. Um, I think those percentages are about right. Hmm. Um So a very small amount of this kind of work, although soul crushing, <laughs> because <laughs> when you really run out the tank like that, uh, you're, you're tired. Um, and, and the athletes probably couldn't have continued doing that for more than a couple of weeks. They got a really large increase uh, in their numbers. Um, and, and so that's one, that was one thing I think is important to drive home is that you can move things around in a short period of time if you do something like that. And some of these people were very, very talented cyclists, critical power and things above 300 watts. So, I mean, these are people who are really fit. Um, some of them that were able to make these improvements. But the, uh, the other thing I drive home is that I was one of the subjects in the study and my numbers didn't move at all. Um, and I slaughtered myself. Um, and so it's important to remember that what works for the group may not work for the individual. Um, I have a very poor response to it, to, uh, to high intensity training. Um, I, uh, without, you know, doing, you know, uh, six or seven hours of cycling a week, including probably a three hour long ride. Um, I get almost no movement in my numbers. Um, and so you really need to, like we said before, you need to analyze every athlete as an individual, because if I mm -hmm. trained to myself, the way I train a lot of my athletes, I would never get any better. Yeah. And, and how many of those workouts per week were you doing when, uh, in, during that study, when, when you saw that they got the physical So, th so three, um, they did okay. they basically three days a week, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, did the same, did the same workout. Now the interval yeah. portion changed. Sometimes there were 20 second intervals. Sometimes there were minute long intervals, but the, the thing was we wanted to drain half of the battery by the midpoint, by the time the intervals were done and drain the second half with a, with a constant work exercise bout. What do you think about, like, is, is, is it the concentrated dose that makes it such a potent weapon or can you spread it out to do say three weeks of 
two per week or six weeks or one per week does that change the response i think it's i think it's probably both the concentration in terms of how frequent those workouts were and, and over over a relatively short period of time um you might get the same response if you did one of those a week for for six weeks that that might not be unusual i've seen critical power move by 10 percent uh, in six weeks mm-hmm. um so uh so it's certainly possible and i don't rec- really recommend this as a training strategy my point, you know, like that, that would not be the, the right way to train almost anybody. <laughs> but yeah. the uh, but the important point is that you know these numbers, intensity really can move move these numbers around, um, mm-hmm. and in a relatively short period of time. Yeah. So it is intensity is a potent stimulus. Mm. Uh, then, is there one additional thing from the book that you would like to to highlight that you think that the listeners would find interesting in addition to the topics we covered here? Yeah, I do cover some more practical things. Um, in particular, I, I cover things like hydration and nutrition, because the truth is, um, when you are racing long distance things, um, success on the day of the race has very little to do with your training and everything to do with how you execute in terms of your nutrition and hydration. Those are the disasters you see. You know, when you look at the marathon times and you see all these people. All, the, all their times falling off at, at mile eighteen or mile twenty as they hit the wall and run out of glycogen. Those are nutritional errors uh, in addition to pacing errors. Um, and so I, I do get into that kind of thing um, in some detail because there has been good research done in terms of, you know, that, you know, for most people getting a, between one and a one and a half grams of carbohydrate per minute exercise um, is what's really necessary um, to be, you know, uh, in addition to pacing to be sure that you maintain your glycogen and, and stores as best you can and put off fatigue. But the other thing I talk uh, in, in some some measure about is supplements. We have just seen um, in the U.S. a very well-known runner who washed out of the Olympics, a couple of runners who were washed out of the Olympics due to adverse uh, analytical findings and, and, and findings of doping. Um, now, some of those, uh, in one case, the runner was had, had the excuse that she ate a burrito that uh, came from uncastrated pigs. Which is a which is a sort of an absurd claim. Uh, now I believe um, they've changed their defense for the court for arbitration of sport for supplement contamination, um, which may or may not be true. I wasn't there, um, but we do know is that there has been extensive studies of supplements, and we know two things: almost none of them work, and the ones that do work are contaminated with something that's illegal. Um, and and they're look they're purposefully contaminated, right? Um, how is it? That creatine used by mus- by bodybuilders, that so much of it ends up magically contaminated with steroids. I mean, why are there steroids hanging around your creatine factory? Um, you know, you're um, you're 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 making uh, you know some sort of nutritional supplement that's supposed to help with weight loss, and oh, surprise, we found stimulants in it, right? Again, like why were there stimulants hanging around the factory? It has to be purposeful. Um, and at the amateur level, you know, amateurs are not drug tested all that often. Um, so there's a major health risk, but there's not necessarily a risk to their livelihood from these kind of contamination issues. Um, for elite athletes, um, where they're not going to get probably any benefit anyway, um, for sure, um, to be taking a risk with your whole career and your reputation and, and, and millions of dollars, it, it's absurd. Um, just, just don't do it. Anything you need to really perform at your best, you can buy at the supermarket. Um, you know, if you walk down the aisle with some caffeine in it, that will help your performance. If you walk down the aisle with some carbohydrate in it, that will help your performance. If you walk down the vegetable aisle and find some high nitrate vegetables, that will help your performance. And none of it is going to make you positive for doping. 
Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And actually, one thing that I've been thinking about and don't really have a, a good answer to, but you might, is uh, is there a risk for contamination of more sort of uh, regular, I guess, general health supplements like vitamin D or a general multivitamin that a lot of people take? Or should should athletes and professional athletes in particular always look for an informed sport or something similar? Or or are they generally safe if you get them from like a re- reputable source? It, that's the problem is because who knows what's reputable, right? Because everyone's farming out their manufacturing to somebody else. Mm. Um, and so you really don't know. And especially in the United States, there is no rule. There's no law that says what they say is in the supplement has to be there. And there's no law that says they can't put other things in there that they don't list. Right. And that's a, and that's because of the government here and the way, the way, you know, manufacturers have lobbied and things. Um, you know, I often tell people that the best sorts of vitamins is the urine of athletes. Um, because, (laughs) because everyone's taking these things thinking it's going to help. If you're eating a healthy diet, you don't need vitamins. Um, if you'd like to take a standard multivitamin centrum for senior citizens or something, because it makes you, you know, feel like you're doing something extra. Okay, do it. It's very unlikely to be contaminated. Once you start coloring outside those lines, you're just taking a major risk. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many kids I've had turn up in my practice, um, you know, high school kids, you know, young kids, 14, 15 years old. Um, and, and they get sent to me after a workup um, because they have weird liver enzymes. Um, and that's the hallmark of a supplement that is contaminated, an oral supplement that's contaminated with steroids. Hmm. Um, it's, it's not uncommon. We see several cases a year. Um, and so as far as I'm concerned, like, you know, anything beyond a multivitamin is number one overkill and number two likely to do more harm than good. Hmm. Very good points. Very, very interesting to hear. Um, and uh, then just a couple of general questions uh, before we start to wrap up. First, what would you tell yourself from 10 years ago uh, as a coach if you could go back in time? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I, would, uh, I would tell myself to enforce more rest on my athletes. Um, you know, you don't get better by training, you get better by recovering from training. Um, and in particular, um, I've seen a few athletes, um, with, as a doctor with really catastrophic results, um, of having, uh, overtrained, um, and, uh, and gotten injured, uh, in particular, um, several years ago, um, I tested a, a really good runner, uh, a, a young woman who had numbers like Paula Radcliffe. Um, and after seven or eight stress fractures, she just retired from running before she even finished college. Um, it is tragic. Um, and so, um, you know, I talk a lot about training with athletes and, and even then I I knew the the importance of rest. Um, I would spend as much time reinforcing the importance of rest as I did the importance of training. Hmm. Very good point. And, uh, what's one thing with endurance sports or science or coaching that you're currently learning about or fascinated by? Um, at the moment, um, I'm involved in uh, a couple of different studies um, where we've ref- we're refining the mathematics of the W bi- prime balance uh, equations, um, including some things we haven't yet published, but we will. Um, but also where we're looking at the relationship between those models um, and actual physiology and muscle type and things like that hmm. uh, and fiber types. So I think uh, for me, one of the really interesting things now is it's great that we've, we build these mathematical models. Um, but, uh, you know, as Einstein famously says, as far as mathematics refer to reality, they are not certain. 
And as far as they are certain, uh, they don't refer to reality. Um, so there's, um, so what, what my current work is really trying to bridge that gap. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Just, uh, just a couple of week, uh, days ago, sorry, by the time that we record this, I published, uh, an interview with, uh, researcher and coach, uh, Mehdi Kordi from the United, uh, United Kingdom, who is uh, a coach with the Dutch track cycling team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he has done research on, um, on W prime and, and, what muscular characteristics uh, relate or, or have the best correlation with W prime, and he found that uh, that muscle. Uh, let me get to see if I can. I can still remember this. Muscle, uh, muscle, muscle strength uh, was was the one that was the most the strongest correlated. Not muscle type, not muscle size, but muscle muscle strength was one that he found to be correlated in in the study that that he had done. But uh, of course, that was just one study and done in interesting ways. So it'll be interesting to see. But yeah, that's maybe yeah. Uh, maybe a study that you would be interested in in looking at. Yeah. And sure. uh, uh, finally, let's uh, finish with the rapid fire questions. Usually, I only do them with the first interview I do with each guest. But actually, uh, last time we had to finish early because uh, you were on call, so we didn't yeah. go through the rapid fire questions. So let's do them now. And the first question is: What's your favorite book or resource? Um. It would probably be um, Bosch and Klomp's uh, f- um, uh, a book on, uh, on running physiology. I think it's called uh, – it's over here in my bookcase someplace. Uh, run, uh, running uh, Physiology uh, and Biomechanics in, in Practice. Uh, you know, Bosch and Klomp are both – one's a very, a very good physiologist. One's a very good uh, coach uh, from uh, – is it Norway? I forget. Exactly uh, it's, it's, it sounds 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 German to me. Um, maybe. Yeah, it, it, but 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 certainly get the book. It's not cheap. Yeah. It's about seventy five US dollars. Um, but it's great because it goes through a fair bit of physiology, which is nice, um, and a review and stuff. But it goes through chapters and chapters of really practical stuff about um, how you how you how you know appropriate strength training for for uh, for runners and things like that. Um, a, a huge section on plyometrics that are very low injury risk, but can be very, uh, very useful in terms of developing economy and stuff like that. So mm. that book is really, I think, a goldmine for, for coaches who are already at a sort of a certain level, but need to take a step up. That sounds great. Yeah. Uh, and what's an important habit that you've benefited from uh, athletically, professionally, or personally? Um, being lazy. <laughs> rest rest <laughs> no i mean i mean i'm not not i mean not, not rest in particular like what i'm talking more about professionally and and things like that um it's that um to make big leaps you have to have time to think you know um there's a reason a guy like albert einstein only published so few you know major papers in his lifetime right um, and when you look at the people who often make the biggest impact, um, it, it's that they took the time to think really deeply about something and none of us are going to function on that level. None of us is going to be an Albert, an Albert Einstein, um, you know, or Niels Bohr or Werner Heisenberg, but all of us can benefit from taking the time to sit down and think through things really clearly, you know? And so, and so for me, for example, I mean, uh, that has taken the, um, you know, professionally, just in the coaching world of reducing my, you know, my, uh, my athlete roster to a third of what it used to be. Um, because, uh, I want to think really, really deeply and carefully because, um, when you do that, you just, um, you start to see things at a whole different level and you, and you start to, um, uh, to appreciate things differently. And I think you're able to make just better decisions. You know, one of the best experiences of my life in working with Nike and working with, with, with Elliot and those guys, 
was having the opportunity because <laughs> Nike forbade me from working with anybody else I, under contract. I had I could only work with these people. Um, so I had to fire all my athletes. But it gave me the opportunity to truly focus on a very, very small subset of people and to think deeply about each one of them. Um, and, it, and it took my ability to coach and my ability to really intervene with athletes to a totally different level. Yeah. Not all of that sounds like being lazy, but but I see your <laughs> point. I see the point that you're making there. <laughs> yeah. And finally, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Um, you know, uh, I, um, in the late 2000s, um, when I realized I had to, um, I had to take my own understanding, uh, to a different level. And I had actually do some, some novel research to get where I needed to be because the work hadn't been done. Um, I went to the UK to work with Andy Jones and Andy Van Hadlow, um, and Stephen Bailey and, and Jamie Blackwell and the whole team over there. Um, because it's such an incredible group of people. Um, and those are the guys I still look up to. Um, they have an incredible work ethic. Um, and for my money, they, they really run the, the best applied physiology laboratory in the world because really the things that we looked at there were how do we figure out things that are going to be of importance to, to regular athletes, you know, and how do we investigate them deeply, uh, deeply, the W prime balance model, the uh, nitrate and exercise and, and things like that. Um, and, uh, and really what was inspirational to me about them is that it was one team, right? Um, I work with doctors all the time. Um, and I see how difficult it is to get doctors to do anything together. When I was in Exeter, um, all of the scientists, all of us, um, plus the students, et cetera, everybody was willing to lend a hand. Everyone was willing to get into each other's studies and be subjects. Um, you know, I often say that the, the group in Exeter is the best physiologically studied group of scientists in the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> something because everybody was biopsying each other and testing each other and, 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 and doing all this kind of stuff. And I think, um, uh, one of the things that Andy and I really brought and, and Annie brought to breaking too was, uh, was that spirit of one team, one goal, all of us pull in the same direction. Um, and I think if you can gather those kinds of people around you, or as a leader, you can enforce and develop and nurture that kind of environment. Um, you cannot help but succeed. Because when you have 10 really smart people working on the same problem, you're going to find out something amazing. Um, and, I, and I think all of us, no matter where we work at in sport, need to think about that. Because there is this myth of the lone genius toiling uh, in solitude. And in my experience, it's complete nonsense. Um, you know, the people who've gotten success that way are either number one lucky um, or number two just didn't give credit to all the people that they should have. That's that's really powerful. And uh, Andy Jones is a past guest on uh, on the podcast. And I'll link to his episode in the in the show notes. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, really, really great, great answer get, there. Get, get Annie on here someplace too. At some point, yeah, because Annie Van Hal is an incredible scientist. Yeah, I have definitely reached out to her. I'll I'll do it again. Mm. Let's see if she's yeah. less busy now. But I saw that she just got on the <laughs> review board is, or. <laughs> and he is terminally busy <laughs> yeah yeah um uh, phil uh, this has been really great finally uh, where can listen listeners follow you uh you you are on twitter and you have a website are they the best places to to go that's the best place to find me just uh you know at dr philip skiba on twitter or uh or just on my website just drop me an email i mean i i do get a lot of email um i try to respond to most of it um yeah. uh because yeah, i just want to help 
Yeah, and and of course the book uh, is uh, called Scientific Training for Endurance Athletes, and by the time this episode is released, hopefully the book is all also released or will be very imminently. So that's uh, the goal. Check that out. I'll, I'll be getting right. one. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Phil. Pleasure to talk to you. Be well. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. I really enjoyed talking to Phil a lot. And uh, as we discussed, Phil's book is called Scientific Training for Endurance Athletes. I'm convinced it will be a brilliant read. So check it out and go and order it if it's out for uh, for ordering now by the time you hear this episode. As always, you can find the show notes for the episode on scientifictriathlon.com, where I'll link to uh, Philip's uh, Twitter profile and website, as well as his previous appearance on the show and the interview that I did with Andy Jones, who Phil worked with in Exeter. A reminder as well that uh, we have the training camp in Mallorca in at the end of March to early April in 2022. We're at 80% of capacity now with registration. So in the next few weeks, we will probably fill up the camp completely. So if you're interested, now is the time to register. You can find more information on scientifictriathlon.com on the training, training camp page, or you can email me directly as well with any questions that you might have. Next Monday, I interview Rick Velati, who is a coach at British Triathlon's World Class Program. Prior to that, he spent almost 12 years being the head coach of the GB and England Talent Program. Uh, so we will talk about long-term athlete development, uh, youth and junior development, and and some other bits and pieces. But but a lot of it is really related to to developing youth and junior triathletes, which I think is really uh, a really interesting topic and a really important one, especially for coaches out there. But anybody can learn something from from the topics we discuss. With Rick. Big thanks finally to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. You can find them on precisionhydration.com where you can take a free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for the next race, or you can use the quick carb calculator to find out how many carbohydrates you should use in training or in racing. You can get 15% off your order of electrolytes or the Precision Fuel range uh, with the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roca that you can find on roca.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.